I want to invite everyone to um, open their Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today brings us to Genesis chapter 25, so right about halfway through Genesis today. Um, I have one brother, and we're about two years and four days apart, and uh, a lot of people uh, think, especially as we get older, that more and more we look alike, and, and we, get a, we get along great right now, but growing up, like we did not get along. Uh, and that's especially because we were so different in so many ways. So my brother loved rap music, which I hated. Uh, I can tolerate now. Um, but I was, I liked rock music. And so if you thought I was, for some of you older folks, maybe you thought I was a little bit better for not liking rap, but I like rock. So you might equally hate rock. But anyway, I loved rock. He loved rap. He didn't care so much about good grades. Um, I was more studious than he was. It's not, if he listens to this, I'm sorry. I, I did. I made better grades than my brother. Um, he would go out with his girlfriends for years on end. I mean, he dated one girl for like eight years, um, whereas my relationships would only last about six months at a time until Mallory. Uh, that's kind of how I knew she was the one because she survived the six-month mark. And usually when you read about twins, like you read about how even though they may grow up miles apart, like they can still share so many similarities. And you can, I mean, search on the internet for any number of examples. But I read about two twin brothers who, um, uh, even though they were, they grew up miles apart, they, they were so like one another. And for one reason or another, they were separated at birth. But even as they grew up, they, they dress in a similar fashion. They walked with a similar gait. They both washed their hands before and after going to the bathroom, which I'm just an after kind of guy. I'm not like a before and after, but they both did that. Um, neither of them liked when a vase of flowers was on the table and people were, were talking, so they would, they would move it. And they even both enjoyed, this is kind of weird, they both enjoyed sneezing loudly in an elevator. Uh, grew up miles apart, but they had all those similarities. But once remarkable about these two brothers is that one grew up Jewish and the other grew up to join the Hitler youth movement. In today's text, we read about two sets of brothers. Both should have had similar upbringings and similar outcomes. One is even a set of twins. But both sets include, include brothers who end up with remarkably different outcomes. Today's sermon is going to include some difficult truths, um, truths that are hard to swallow, but it's because in this chapter we see the mysterious work of God in the unfolding of history. Mysterious as in we don't understand it, but it's His will and His prerogative. It's a contrast in this chapter of two genealogies. There's really two genealogies in this chapter that is focused on. and One is between Isaac and Ishmael, and the other is between Jacob and Esau. And what this contrast reveals is both God's decision to reject some and choose others, as well as our responsibility before Him. That is a tension that 
It spans the whole Bible. It's God's elective choice in choosing some and rejecting others, as well as our responsible decisions and choices before Him to either choose Him or reject Him. This chapter in particular reveals that we are at fault for our sins before God and that those that God chooses will walk in obedience to Him. And my my goal today is is not to teach a certain theology, right? Even though that's inevitable as we go through Scripture, right? Theology is going to happen. My goal today is that we would be in awe of God's tremendous mercy and that we would walk in down-on-our-knees humility and holiness before Him because of that mercy. That, That His mercy would drive us to deeper devotion, deeper love, deeper faith, more earnest repentance, more earnest seeking after Him, more putting off the old self, more more putting off the flesh because of His mercy. So let's read chapter 25 and walk through this together. I apologize, it's not on the screen today. It's one of those days. Follow along in your own Bibles. Chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran. Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumini. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Henoch, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. I have to give a disclaimer here. I did not practice the reading of the names in preparation for today. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty-seven years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. 
and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Two observations really stand out in this chapter, and and the first is separation is fundamental. One thing that you'll notice in this chapter is the centrality of, of land. So remember back in chapter 15, God promised Abraham that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. So, so this land not only becomes central to Abraham's identity, who am I, right? But this land is also central in God's plan to redeem humanity. So there's not just a, a, uh, important significance for Abraham and his offspring, but in the saving purposes of God. So that's why we have this genealogy telling us about the rest of Abraham's children, which is pretty stunning to say the least. I mean, for most of this guy's life, he couldn't have kids. And uh, now he's just popping them out, one after the other. We read about all these, all these offspring he had. Like, whoa, good for, good for you, man. Like, wow, you got lots of sons now. But, and, and Moses, the author, really makes a point to show that only Isaac, among all these offspring, was destined to inherit the promise. So, verse 5, he gave, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, so he takes care of them, and while he was still living, listen to this, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So, he's sending all of his sons, even though they're his family, away from the land. Significant. This idea is repeated with Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn. After they bury Abraham, right, we're told that Ishmael's descendants and genealogy, we're told about them, and very pointedly in verse 18, look, look at verse 18. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So Ishmael is settling away from the land. There's a separation that is happening, a separation that's important, and a separation that Moses is 
pointedly trying to show us here. So the land represents not just God's uh, promise to Abraham. Right? The, the land is wrapped up in God's faithfulness, His promises, His word, whether He's true, whether He's powerful. It's wrapped up in all of that, but it also represents this idea of separation and how important it was for God's people to be separated from the world. So in Exodus, God separates His people from wicked Egypt, which finds its consummation when they acquire the land. He's demarcating who his people are. When, when they settle in the land, they are required to separate themselves from the people who still dwell there. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about marriage, right? And how they're not to intermarry. That was part of keeping themselves separate. When I was driving by Marshfield, uh, earlier this year or sometime, I noticed something I'd never noticed before, but it's a sign that said, Home of Edwin Hubble. And surprised me. Never, oh, cool. Uh, you know, uh, Edwin Hubble, the inventor of the Hubble telescope, um, now outdone by the new newer model. Uh, but Marshfield, I'm thankful for Marshfield, right? Uh, we're thankful for the people who come from Marshfield. But they're, they're trying to make a separate identity, right, for themselves. Right? They're not just another Missouri country town. Even though we know different, right? Uh, but the, the point is, they're trying to make this separate identity for themselves, but, but you can still move away from Marshfield, right? And it's no problem. To be apart from the land was to be apart from the saving presence of God. Separation being apart from the world has always been fundamental to the identity of the people of God. A distinct separation. But here's what's astonishing that happens in this chapter. I mean, this is truly amazing. Is that this separation is not just happening between Israel and the nations, but between Israelites themselves. All of Abraham's other children are considered different nations primarily because they didn't come from Sarah. If they didn't come from Sarah, they're different nations. But Jacob and Esau come from the same womb at the same time, they're twins. They're Israelites from, by every definition of the word, from the same mother of promise, Rebecca. And yet, even between these two, a separation is made. Look, this is why I, I, this emphasis on nations. Look at verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Read, separated Two people shall be separated. The one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. What is being shown between Isaac and Esau is made concrete between Jacob and Esau. Not only 
Is there a sovereign election of Israel among all other nations? Not only is that happening, but there is sovereign election among Israelites, among Israelites. Not just Israel among nations, but Israelites among other Israelites. What we're being shown in chapter 25 is it's not just that separation in terms of land that makes them the people of God, but separation in terms of election. Paul means in in Romans 10, not all Israel were Israel. The people of God are those, listen, the people of God are those that God separates for Himself in sovereign election by grace alone without any action on their part to warrant it or reject it. Now, you might argue that God chose Jacob and Esau this way because He foresaw the trajectory of their lives. But I reject that for a number of reasons. One, because if He were to make decisions based on their merit, then it's no longer grace. Um, But secondly, Jacob does many things that shows he's less than a moral example. We'll get to that later. But primarily, we find this in the words of Paul himself in Romans 9. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. In other words, God chose this without considering their actions, without weighing them, without seeing if they're deserving of this or not. His sovereign election of Jacob over Esau did not even factor their good or bad actions. Separation is fundamental to the identity of the people of God because now our entire identity is shaped by nothing other than mercy. We are not a people who first chose our God, but a people first chosen by our God. We are not a people who first loved and sought God, but a people loved by God first. First loved by God. And this this separation leads to separate living. Paul, again, he writes in Titus 3. At one time, we. So we, as in all of us, you're in these categories, okay? Don't think you've never been these things because you have been, and maybe you are right now. But at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We were of the world. So what's the difference now between us and the world? But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Separation is fundamental. A separation that is fundamentally an electing mercy and, and a separation from the world. 
And this leads us to our, our second observation. Sanctification is essential. Just as land features prominently in this chapter, so does behavior. And actually, behavior is, is tied directly to this uh, separation that we're talking about. In other words, the separation affects the behavior. Take Ishmael, for example. We, we read his genealogy in, verse, in verses 12 to 18, but what these verses don't mention is, is how Ishmael uh, has all these descendants. Well, we've already been told that. Back in, in chapter 21, Isaac is born, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away, and uh, at the end of that story we read that his mother Hagar took a wife from him for him from the land of Egypt. And so that little tidbit of information is actually incredi- incredibly important, especially, guys, if you remember chapter 24, remember all the painstaking obedience that this servant went through to get Isaac a wife from Abraham's family. We talked all about marriage and what marriage means and what it represents and how it affects the people of God. And not only, like if you read Deuteronomy 7, it's not just intermarrying is forbidden. It is directly tied to kindling God's wrath. In a way that many other prohibitions are not. Right? Other prohibitions lead to his wrath, yes, but this one is tied directly to it in a special way. So not only did Ishmael marry a foreign wife, but his legacy is now summed up in chapter 25, verse 18. And it's not a good legacy, is it? He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, I would encourage you, if you want to hear God's heart for Ishmael's descendants, commonly believed to be Arabs, Muslims, please go listen to my sermon in chapter 16 because that's a great um, balance. But suffice it to say here that Ishmael's life is marked by a pattern of disobedience and that disobedience is the direct result of his separation from the land. In other words, sanctification or the lack of it is the result of separation. Whether you are sanctified or not depends on where you stand in relation to the world and in relation to God. This is illustrated by by Ishmael's separation from the land and his intermingling with the world. Now now listen here, this is a really important corrective. This does not mean that um, unbelievers or atheists or lost people can't be good. Um, There's lots of good people who don't believe in God, but they're not sanctified. They're not righteous. Plenty, uh, several, I said plenty, several of the founding fathers weren't Christians themselves, but they were virtuous guys. I'm sure Jeff Bezos, uh, If I don't know how much he's given to charity, I could look this up, but if he gave 10% of his total wealth, he's given more to charity than Liberty has in our whole lifetime. <laughs> But what's interesting again is that the pattern of disobedience seen in Ishmael is also seen in Esau. This isn't just a matter of being separated from the land or separated from um, the nuclear family of God, Abraham and his 
and Isaac. Here, here we come to a very infamous passage where Esau, um, daddy's boy, right? He works the fields, um, really calloused hands. He's a hunter, right? We, we like hunting and calloused hands in this room. I mean, we have a, a veteran of a spider bite sitting in the back row, right? We, we like manly men here. Uh, yeah, I'm David. I'm David. I'm calling you out um, for being a manly man, right? And and Jacob, he's a mama's boy. He, he stays inside where it's air conditioned. It's kind of how I was when I was growing up. That's why I'm not a very good Eagle Scout because instead of going out and camping and getting dirty, I want to stay inside and play my video games. I tried to correct that some in my adulthood. Uh, my my hands are callous today because we went rock climbing yesterday. But yes, Esau and Jacob, and Esau comes in from the field from his manly working or hunting or whatever he's doing. Jacob's in there cooking, you know, and, and Jacob tricks him into selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, and the point is, it's in stark relief, Esau's ungodliness and caring so little for his birthright. This isn't just a, a firstborn son just not caring about the inheritance, which is astonishing in and of itself, right? If we're reading this in this culture, that's really astonishing. But it also shows his dishonor for his father Isaac. Does not care to carry on Isaac's legacy. But more than that, it shows how little he cares to inherit the promises given to Isaac. So there's a great ungodliness exhibited by Esau here. This is as appalling as a mother caring so little for her infant that she just leaves it in a car in the baking sun. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is Ishmael, by virtue of his separation from the land, and Esau, by virtue of his separation by election, lead decidedly ungodly lives. What we're being shown is that sanctification will not happen apart from God's electing mercy. And here's the hard truth. You can't decide to make yourself holy. God is the one who must decide to set you apart and make you holy. That is God's decision. A sinner cannot appeal to a holy God. The holy God must do something. The holy God must initiate on the sinner's behalf, if he so wills. He holds the prerogative. And this is what Paul means, again, in Romans 9, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or his effort, but on God's mercy. And here, here's a, even the desire to repent comes from God's mercy on you. If you have the most inkling desire to repent, praise God for His mercy that you have that. Because an unbeliever doesn't care. On the flip side, just as sanctification does not happen apart from God's separation, so sanctification is inevitable because of His separation. Even though God saves us apart from our works, whether good or bad, His electing mercy always reveals itself in our good works. 
We see this in Abraham's life. Also Isaac's and, and Jacob's too. And listen, neither Abraham nor Isaac nor Jacob are great moral heroes. I mean, Jacob is straight up a liar. His, his name means liar, trickster. But these guys, in contrast to Esau and Ishmael, have a trajectory of growing holiness. This is why I prefer to say the biblical heroes are not heroes of morals, but heroes of faith. And here we have the great tension of separation and sanctification. You cannot be sanctified. You cannot be holy until you are separated by God's mercy. Try with all your might. You can be a good person. You can be virtuous. But sanctification will not happen until God sets you apart by His mercy. On the other hand, your obedience is your responsibility. If you choose this day to remain disobedient and careless about God's word and his will, that is all on you. And you will be judged for your disobedience and lack of concern and carelessness, contempt. But practice holiness. Holiness that is sought is essential. Personal and deep concern for holiness because God sovereignly works that in you. The the writer of, of Hebrews wrote this way, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So where does this leave us today? In desperate need of God's mercy. If we even have the slightest inkling to be holy, that is a mercy. That Desire doesn't originate with you. It doesn't come from the goodness of your heart. It comes from the mercy of your God. Ask God and plead with Him to make you holy and to maintain that desire for holiness. And if we are unconcerned with holiness, then that is an indicator that God has not set you apart. And you are still lost in your sins. And there's nothing you can do about it. Plead with God to have mercy on you and that He would soften your oh-so-hardened heart. What I'm saying, Scripture says better, right? Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
Listen, the question we should be asking is not whether we are elect or not. That's the wrong question. But how are we responding to God's word? That's the question you should be asking. Is your heart responsive? In repentance, in contrition, in faith, in obedience. The wonderful comfort of all of this is that if you have faith in Christ today and if you love Him, then that means God has set His eternal, electing, divine love on you. And there's nothing you can do to make that love go away. Nothing. And the good news for everyone is that this God offers Himself freely to all who will receive Him in Christ. Am I elect or not? Am I hardened? Receive Him because He offers Himself to you freely. Receive Him by faith. I used to worry whether I had sinned too much and had sold my birthright as Esau did here. Have, have I sinned too much? The reality is that we have all sold our birthrights because of our sin. We sell our birthrights every single day. We, we treat the grace of God with contempt when we sin. We say we'd rather have a bowl of stew than have the inheritance of the eternal God. And the Lord's Supper is where we come to the one with the birthright. To be accepted by Him without cost. I want to invite John up this morning. Because this supper is for all believers. All baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take this meal if you are not baptized and if you are not a Christian. A guy named Soren Kierkegaard said of Jesus that his whole life on earth from beginning to end was destined solely to have followers and to make admirers impossible. Only come to Christ if you are ready to give up all of yourself to have all of Him. And in this meal, guys, this is God meets us in love in this meal. God the Father loves you, Christian. He loves you with a deep, divine, passionate, and affectionate love. And in this meal, we're reminded of His love. And that He gave us His Son freely. We're reminded of His faithfulness to us. A faithfulness that can't be taken away because Jesus paid for us. We're reminded of His abiding presence with us because this is a meal that we share with our God. Christian, this isn't mere symbolism, although lots of symbolism is happening. This We are sitting down with our God to eat. 
in this meal, we dine with Christ. We share this meal with a very real Jesus this morning. Even as we freely partake of His very real death and very real resurrection. So, this morning, as I do every time with the Lord's Supper, we, I'll pray over these elements. And John and I will pass them out and I'll read Scripture. And let's take this meal together in repentance for sin. And taking freely of all that Jesus is for us. And that is everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning not just as your worshipers, not just as your followers, not just as redeemed sinners, but as a people who approach the table to eat with you. In a very real way, you meet us in these elements. So set them apart for your purposes, Lord. Set the bread apart as your broken body and set the cup apart as your spilled blood of a new covenant. We are guilty sinners adulterous women wayward men or let us just cry tears over your mercy and your grace because this is your body freely broken for us and your blood freely spilled for us speak to us through these elements refresh us 